Well, many of you know that this upcoming Wednesday, we have as a church a day set aside as our quarterly day of prayer and fasting. And each quarter, we assign a new theme to this day of prayer and fasting. It's a day when we want to, as it were, afflict ourselves and to feel in our hearts the significance and the weight of the matters that we're going to bring before God and to give God a visible demonstration of how deeply we care about the things we intercede and pray for, intercede on behalf of and pray for. And the things that we've been praying about over the past couple quarters are those things which are significant. They often come to the very heart of what it means to be a Christian in a Christian church and the things that are going on in our life here as a congregation. And Pastor Ron and I have designed, designated this next upcoming day of prayer and fasting to be that which will involve missions and the expansion of the kingdom of God around this world. We have prayed here regarding our church, us as individuals, but our understanding is, based on the word of God, that God's purpose for his people is a kingdom that will go throughout the world to the glory of the name of his son. And so I thought it would be good to bring a message from the word of God that dealt with that theme to prepare us and to give us a heart for the work of Christ and the work of the gospel around the world. So I'd ask that you turn in your copy of God's word to the book of Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. I'll be reading verses 44 through 52. Paul and his companions are in Antioch and Pisidia. And this is now the end of their dealings with that, those people, Paul and Barnabas specifically. We read, starting in verse 44, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. This is the holy, inerrant, inspired, infallible word of the living God, which lives and abides forever. Take heed how you hear. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us again seek the Lord's help as we study his word this morning. Lord, we ask that today you would open our eyes, that we would behold wondrous things from your law. We pray that you take away all inward opposition and lethargy, spiritual lethargy, that we might lay hold of your word and rejoice in its truth and walk in its light. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your outline in front of you, we're going to start our study this morning by looking at point number one, the fact that God's plan of salvation 
is salvation to the ends of the earth. God's plan is salvation to the ends of the earth. And we see that mentioned here in verses 46 through 48. It's what Paul focuses on in response to the opposition of the Jews. We read in verse 46, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, the Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. What Paul indicates here, firstly, is that salvation was first preached to the Jews. He makes that clear. He says, this has been our modus operandi. He says in verse 46, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. And he is confirming the fact that previously in the ministry of himself and other apostles and other ministers of the word, this is exactly what had happened. The word of God primarily had gone to the Jews. Keep your fingers here, but let's take a quick tour through the book of Acts, and we'll see this laid out for us. If you turn all the way back to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, and I would encourage you to turn in your copy of the Word of God so that you can see these things laid out for yourself. Acts chapter 1, the verse 8 is often referred to as the theme verse of the book of Acts, but I'll start reading in verse 6. So when they, the disciples, had come together, they asked him, Jesus, Lord, what will, as Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And where does he say first? In Jerusalem and in all Judea. And that's because the Jews were living there, and it was God's ordained plan that first the gospel would spread among the Jewish people. And we see this happening in in Pentecost, the next chapter, chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. When we have thousands flock to Christ and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is it that believed? Chapter 2, verse 5, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So we have here again primarily Jews gathering to Jerusalem for the feasts, coming together, these people who had been spread throughout all the known world at that point in time, who had even different languages they had learned. Turn with me then. Fast forward to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. As the word of God starts going forth, the apostle, he wasn't the apostle then, the Pharisee Saul was persecuting the people of God, and the Jews, the Christian Jews, were being spread throughout the known world at that point in time. And we read in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, it says, Now those who were scattered, that would be the Jewish Christians, because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus in Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So they were, again, they were keeping primarily the message of the kingdom of God to the Jewish people as they were spread abroad. Turn over to Acts chapter 13 now. We have Paul on his mission. And in verse 5, this is now Paul and Barnabas sent out. They come to Cyprus. And in Acts chapter 13 verse 5 says, And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And this again was Paul's primary 
uh, focused. When he went into these cities, he would go to the synagogues and he would speak to the Jews. And even in the passage that we're reading in Antioch and Pisidia, Paul and Barnabas, it's clear they had been speaking originally to Jews, which is why they said, we're not, you're, you're judging yourselves unworthy of eternal life. We're going to turn aside from you. In verses 13 through 16 of Acts chapter 13, we read this. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of, of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. And so they go on then to discuss the kingdom of God, but they're speaking to Jews. Paul addresses them in verse 16 as men of Israel. Drop down to verse 23. He says, of this man's offspring, God has promised to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he has promised. What's Paul saying? He's saying, Jesus came to save you, you Jewish people. He came to save you. He's a Savior for Israel. Then in verse 32, Acts chapter 13, verse 32, and we bring you, you Jewish people, ethnic Jews, the good news that what God promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising up Jesus. So he's making it clear, one of the reasons I'm coming to you with this message is this message is specifically for you. And so he's preaching to Jews. Now, however, up till this point in Acts, though the message of salvation was primarily preached to Jews, there were hints of it breaking out past its Jewish borders, though not many Gentiles had been saved yet. So turn with me back to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, and we're flipping around here a lot in, in the book of Acts to get the history of the expansion and spread of the gospel early on. Acts chapter 8, we read in verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. We learned about that previously. But here is a man, Philip, verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. Now the Samaritans were these mixed blood Jews, so they're kind of Jewish but not really fully Jewish. So we see there... Philip, he's now going to those who are not really full-blooded Jews, and he's preaching the gospel to them. And many of them believed later on in the passage there was much joy in the city. Acts chapter 10. This is where we really get an indication of the fact that very soon the gospel and God's salvation are going to be extending far beyond Jewish borders. We have this whole narrative of Peter and Cornelius, and we read in verses 44 and 45 of Acts chapter 10, um, it says this, while Peter was still saying these things, in other words, he's saying these things to Cornelius, who is a Roman centurion, and to the other members of his household. There was no Jews there, other than the ones that had come to bring the message of the gospel, Peter and his companions. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. And so you have these Jews, like, this is unbelievable. Gentiles are becoming Christians. This is almost astonishing to them. And then in Acts chapter 11, verse 20, we read also of this. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. So, yes, most of the people who spread out, they were speaking to Jews, but not all of them. There were these Greek-speaking, whether, whether it looks like these Hellenists were actual Greek-speaking people, but it could have been Greek-speaking Jews. 
But you can see that already there's these hints that the boundaries of the gospel won't be limited to ethnic Jews. Now, one of the clear indications, overt statements in the book of Acts that salvation would extend to the Gentiles is found in the narrative of the calling of the apostle Paul. So we're not surprised in Acts 13 later on when we see that Paul says, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Because even when he was saved, God indicated this would be his mission. Turn with me back to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. God is here speaking to Ananias. Ananias is a Jew. God is sending Ananias to Saul, who everybody thought was an opponent. Everybody thought at this time is a murderer. I don't want to go near the guy. And God's saying to Ananias, go to Paul, go to Saul, and speak to him my words. And this is God's message to Ananias in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. The Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So right at the outset, God has saved Paul. And he hasn't even told Paul what the mission is, but he's told Ananias, this man is specially designated and set aside for a peculiar mission, and that is to bring the gospel to those who are not Jews. And here in Acts chapter 13, Paul explicitly says, that their mission is going to take a new turn. It's almost like he's making a new mission statement. He's cutting ties. Not, not completely, but by and large, he's going to cut ties with the mission he had in the past. And he says, I'm going to now go to the Gentiles. When we read this in verse 46. He says, since you thrust it aside, he's talking to the Jews, since you thrust aside the, the word of God, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, Acts 13, 46. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And unfortunately, the occasion for him turning to the Gentiles was the fact that the Jews were rejecting the good news about Jesus Christ and judging themselves, in Paul's words, unworthy of eternal life. But we need to understand that as this is happening, this salvation being extended to the Gentiles, that this was always part of God's plan. Abraham, all the way back in the beginning, and we're going to take a quick tour of the Bible to show that in the Old Testament, God was giving indications of this, that this would be the case. His prophets had this on their tongue. Their words would prophesy about this day. The scriptures had clearly been revealing this, that salvation to the end of the earth was always God's plan. So we have Abraham What does God say about Abraham? I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Many nations. Not just the Jewish nation. And so God, at the very beginning, even forming the Jewish nation, is saying, my understanding of what this Jewish nation will be one day is that this Jewish nation, all Israelites, all true Israelites, will come from many nations. And then we have the prophecies of the Messiah's universal kingdom, And the book of Psalms is great for speaking of this. Psalm 2, verse 8, speaking to the Messiah, God says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Meaning that the whole purpose of the Messiah coming was to have his kingdom extend and include all nations and encompass all nations, even the farthest nations. And then we sang the hymn this morning, The ends of all the earth shall fear, right? That comes from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a great messianic psalm. And we read this in Psalm 22, verse 27. It was actually the verse that was at the top of that hymn. 
All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. So at the beginning of that psalm, it's speaking of the sufferings of the Messiah. Now it's speaking of the nations that will come worship God as a result of those sufferings. And then we have Psalm 72. Turn with me to Psalm 72. There's a number of references here. This is one of those wonderful psalms. Speaking again of the kingdom of the Messiah stretching out and encompassing all nations. Psalm 72. This is a psalm of Solomon. And we read this in verse 1. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. In other words, this is a psalm about God's royal son. The one, the son of David who would rule, who we know ultimately was found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now drop down to verses 8 through 11. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Drop down to verse 17. We'll read verses 17 through 19. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And so we see the prophecies here in in the book of Psalms regarding the Messiah's kingdom frequently speak regarding it as being a universal kingdom, a kingdom that will encompass all nations. Then we have Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 2, one of the prophets. He speaks of how God will one day restore Jerusalem and make Jerusalem so beautiful that all the nations will be attracted to it and come to it. Isaiah chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob. In other words, they're being attracted to the God of Israel. All the nations are coming and they're flowing into this place that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And then one more. There's other passages we could turn to, but one more is Zephaniah chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. But speaking of the conversion of the nations, verses 9 and 10, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord, And serve him with one accord. So the prophet, he sees a time in the future where God will cause all the nations to have such a speech that they're crying out to God in prayer, that they're seeking God because they want to serve him with one accord. Now, Paul was well versed in the Word of God, and he knew this, which is why when this happens, he's not surprised. And he goes back and quotes from the Old Testament to support what he's going to do. So we read, Again, in Acts chapter 13, if you want to turn back there, 
Paul quotes the Old Testament supporting his decision. He doesn't come and say, well, you know what? I'm offended that you guys aren't listening to me. So you know what? I'm going to go start preaching to the Gentiles. And this is just, you know, I don't have any direction from Scripture. I just think this is a good idea. No, he turns back to the Old Testament with the support for his decision. And we read in Acts chapter 13, 47. Now this is a quote from the book of Isaiah. And we're going to be looking at this. This is Isaiah chapter 49. He says, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, in quote, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. He's quoting the Old Testament there. Now let us examine this quote. Right? What, what is, what's going on in this quote? What's going on in this passage in Isaiah that it would come to Paul's mind and lend support for the decision and the actions that Paul is now engaging in? So again, we're going to go back to the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 49. Turn with me there. We're going to be back in Acts 13 quickly. But let's go to Isaiah chapter 49. And what's going on in this passage? And I'm going to read verses 5 and 6. We don't have time to get into the entire context, but this is a whole portion of Scripture where God is restoring the glory of Jerusalem. He's speaking of God's call to Israel, the restoration of Israel, and the servant of the Lord that God will use to accomplish this restoration. And we read in verses 5 and 6 the following. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. And here is what Paul quotes, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Now what we see in verse 5 is that there is this unnamed servant, this unnamed servant who God raised up, and the servant is aware of his divine calling. And the servant had a very clear purpose, and that purpose is laid out in verse 5. It's to restore Jacob to God and to gather Israel back to God. The servant has, as we see in verse 5, the servant has God on his side and God for his strength. And there's a lot that could be said about the servant of the Lord in the book of Isaiah that exceeds the bounds of what we're going to be going into today. But that's who the servant is. And in verse 6, we, hear, we see the, the purpose of the servant clarified. God clarifies the purpose of the servant in verse 6. The restoration of Israel is not the entire nation of Israel. Because he refers in verse 6 to the preserved of Israel. Very interesting. The preserved of Israel. Seeming to indicate that not all of Israel is preserved. Therefore, the bringing of Jacob back to him that's mentioned in verse 5, and the gathering of Israel back to him, which is mentioned in verse 5, and the raising of the tribes of Jacob in verse 6, should be understood as referring to a remnant of ethnic Jews who will be preserved by God and restored as the people of God, the people of God he always intended them to be. And this is exactly what we see happening at the beginning of the book of Acts. The Jewish nation, by and large, had fallen and become apostate. They were not followers of God. They were not serving God. They were not living for God. And what do we see starting with the Lord Jesus Christ, the great servant of the Lord and now continuing with his workers? We see Jews, not all of them, 
In fact, very few, but we do see a remnant of Jews being drawn out from among the apostate nation and God using that Jews to rest- those Jews to restore his kingdom, as it were, and to begin to build the true nation of Israel. And it seems no, there seems no doubt about the fact that the servant of the Lord disclosed here in Isaiah 49 is the Lord Jesus Christ because of the work that is being done. So he not only clarifies the purpose of the servant, but he expands the work of the servant. Okay, so you might think, okay, well, he's going he's to draw out this remnant, this small remnant of Jews. They're going to be converted. They're going to become the true people of God. And we'll have this, you could say, this new Israel that's formed out of an old ethnic Israel. But that's not it. He expands the work of the servant. And in verse 6, God says that restoring a remnant of ethnic Israel is just too small. He uses this phrase in the ESV, it's too light a thing. Now, what does this word light mean? Right? What does this word light mean? Well, you don't have to turn there, but in Jeremiah 6 and Jeremiah 8, uh, God says this regarding false prophets. He says, they have healed the wound of my people lightly. Saying, do you remember what they said? How did they heal the wound of the people lightly? They said, peace, peace, when there was no peace. In other words, the nation of Israel was already apostate back then, by and large. And God was sending prophets like Jeremiah with the true word saying, repent. But there were prophets among them who were treating the apostasy of Israel at that time as something not significant. It's not a big deal. Your errors and your problems, they're not that weighty. And so they would cry out, peace. Peace, when there is no peace. They treated the problems of Israel as something, hey, it's just, it's just a flesh wound. It's just a scratch. You don't have to really worry about it. So you have all these prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and, it, and others like that, and they're coming and thundering the law of God and calling for repentance and calling for the people to go back to God. And these false prophets are saying, listen, it's not, they're, they're blowing it way out of proportion. This is not that big a deal. You're not that sinful. You're not that evil. And God is rebuking those false prophets, saying they're, they're treating something as insignificant that is really significant. Now, what God is saying here in verse 49, when he says, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant, he's saying that he is going to expand the work of the servant. Okay, previously, it was these ethnic Jews that I'm going to call out and build my church with. That's too small. That's not significant enough. It's just not a great enough or large enough work. It's too insignificant for the servant just to bring back the preserved of Israel. God is looking for something greater. God is looking for something vaster, more monumental, more magnificent. Something that will bring him far greater glory than just saving a remnant of Israel, a remnant of ethnic Jews. And God reveals his intention that his servant will be a light for the nations. In verse 6, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach, again, far beyond the borders of ethnic Israel, wherever they might even have been scattered, it's going to penetrate to the ends of the earth. To the end of the earth. God wanted his salvation to be broader, to reach farther. He wanted his salvation on earth to be unbounded, to encompass a vaster territory, to include all peoples, comprise all nations, and incorporate all nations. God did not think it was big enough 
until he extended it to the very end of the earth. Only when it contains all types of peoples, some from every nation, even the most remote nations, will it be worthy of God. Anything else is too small. Anything else is too light, too insignificant. Now, as we turn back to Acts chapter 13, how is Paul applying Acts chap- or Isaiah chapter 49? First, Paul is viewing this prophecy as being fulfilled in his day. Paul is saying, that's what's happening right now. I'm obeying this command, and it's happening right now. God's salvation is now going to be extending to the ends of the earth. So it's something that, in some sense, was peculiar to that new age, that new church age. But second, Paul viewed the prophecy as a command, right? Notice that in verse, in verse 47, for so the Lord has commanded us, right? It's not just a prophecy, it's a command that Paul understood. It's a command, you could say, to the church in general, but even to Paul specifically. For so the Lord has commanded us. Probably primarily referring to him and Barnabas, but I would say more generally to the church at large as well. Paul understands the light to be the church and the workers that represent the church. And Paul understood that the purpose of being a light was in order to bring the message of salvation to the ends of the earth. He says, For so the Lord has commanded us, I have made you a light for the Gentiles. And what's going to be the result of this light that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth? Now, can Paul really apply this to himself, though? Right? I mean... Paul, are you doing a little bit of fancy exegetical work there to refer to the servant of the Lord and now that's you? Because we're pretty sure that's talking about the Messiah. I thought that the servant was Christ, even the light of the world, right? I'm going to make you a light to the Gentiles. Isn't the light of the world Jesus Christ? Well, this is how Paul would have understood it. And we know this from the rest of his writings. The church is the body of Christ. And as the people of God are united to their head, the Lord Jesus Christ, his mission becomes their mission. God's command to Christ was to be the light of the world. And this is what is revealed. Christ came and said, I am the light of the world. As I've been sent by my Father, this is the commission that I'm carrying out. But it's also something Jesus said was true of his people. Not only am I the light of the world, but you are the light of the world. Wait, is it one or the other? It's both. Because as we become united to Christ, you can say as we become plugged into the great light of the world, we then emanate the light of Christ around us. So the people of God in the church itself is also the light of the world. So this is why Paul is able to apply it to himself. God's command to bring salvation to the ends of the earth, it was given, you could say first and foremost, to his servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. The commission is to the Messiah, go and bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Subdue the ends of the earth. Cause your reign to be extended and encompass all peoples. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing right now. And so he takes all of his servants and he gathers them together just before he ascends back up to his father and says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Because that's a commission he had himself received. And it's a commission that he gives to all those who follow him. And that's his way of saying, I want to obey my father. I want my kingdom to extend far and wide, even to encompass people 
who don't even know my name right now, who you don't even know exist, maybe in other continents. So he tells them to make disciples of all the nations. The servant of the Lord clearly understood the commission, and he wanted his people, his servants, to understand the commission. And so Paul understood and communicated to those in Antioch and Pisidia, using Isaiah 49, that it was always God's plan for his salvation to extend to the ends of the earth. Always. And he was using Jewish scriptures to prove his point. We also know, based on this passage, we're going to take a slight turn here, we also know that salvation of the Gentiles was always God's plan because he had appointed some of them to eternal life before the dawn of history. Right? Did you catch that there in verse 48? It says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And here it is. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Wow. What is this whole appointing to eternal life about? What does it mean that only those who were appointed to eternal life believed? What Paul is doing, and this shouldn't surprise us, when it comes to missions and when it comes to evangelism, he's going to speak about the doctrine of election. And Luke here, as he's recounting these events, being influenced by Paul, he's referring to the doctrine of election in, co- in connection with evangelism and missions. We read in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, that this is what God did for all his people. He chose us in him that is in Christ before the foundation of the world. So that anybody who is ever saved, anybody who will ever be saved... One of the reasons that they're saved, we could put this in various, we could term this in various ways, but one of the reasons they're saved is because before the foundation of the world, God appointed them to eternal life. And so they were appointed to eternal life. Well, if they were appointed to eternal life from all eternity, it must have been God's plan from all eternity that they would be saved. Meaning, it must have been God's plan from all eternity that his salvation would extend to the very end of the earth. That's the point. And so, my dear friends and brethren in Christ, when we come Wednesday to pray, we should pray for the success of God's plan. This is, not, this is something that was fundamental to the expansion in the creation of God's kingdom. And this has always been the prayer of God's enlightened people. They have always wanted the nations to be gathered in. So turn with me back to Psalm 67. Psalm 67. You might think, wow, we're going back to the Psalms to learn about the prayer that God's kingdom would extend far and wide? Yeah. Because this has always been the prayer of God's enlightened people. We read in Psalm 67, a shorter psalm. I'm going I'm to read the whole psalm. And this is, this is a prayer, really. This is asking God to, to accomplish this. Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Let, sorry, let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. And so the inspired psalmist, enlightened 
by the Spirit of God and enlightened by the revelation he had up until that point. His prayer to God, his, the great desire of his heart was that all the nations would praise God, that all the nations would come to fear God. That was back in the Old Covenant. It makes you wonder how many Jews would repeat that psalm and really mean it in Jesus' day and in Paul's day. And then we have in Psalm 117, verse 1, the shortest psalm in, in the Psalms. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. So all the enlightened people of God, I shouldn't say all of them, as God enabled them and gave them light, they came to understand that this was God's plan. This was God's purpose, that his kingdom would extend to the very ends of the earth, that his salvation would extend to the ends of the earth. And so this is what we should pray for. Lord, you've revealed this. We're praying for your, your plan to come to ultimate fruition, for your plan to succeed in our day. We want to know in our day. We want to see its expansion. We want to see it reach, as it were, the very ends of the earth. And that's why we're going to pray. That's why we're going to pray on Wednesday. Because we know we're praying in accordance with God's will. And it's a desire of our heart like it has been for all of God's people. Well, that brings us to point number two this morning. And that is the two categories of reactions to God's plan for salvation to reach the ends of the earth. And we have the first category is what I'm terming the main reaction of the unbeliever to God's plan. And that's opposition. And we see this in verses 50 and 51 of Acts chapter 13. The Jews incited the devout women of high standing and leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. The opposition here in Acts chapter 13 consisted mainly of individuals inciting others against Christ's ambassadors. The same is true today. We have heard about it. In places like Papua New Guinea, Cyprus, Hong Kong, Pakistan, China, the Maldives, and other places. The opposition consists of people who hate Christ, people who love their sins, who love their wayward rebellion. Because wherever the darkness is pierced by the light, the darkness shrinks from it, hates it, and seeks to overcome it. Even now, around the world, what stratagems are evil people concocting? What plots are they scheming? What ruin for gospel witness are they dreaming up? What harmful designs have they created? All in an effort to oppose God's salvation from reaching the ends of the earth. These people who so often are incited to this devilish work by Satan himself. And so, when we come Wednesday, we're going to pray about this. We're going to pray that God would overcome this opposition. We're going to pray that God would cause this opposition to come to nothing. Yes, the opposition may at times seem successful. Paul and Barnabas had to leave the city. But, the very next verse... Sorry, we know later on in Iconium chapter 14, and later on, this did not stop the progress of the gospel. There was opposition in one place, but the word was not able to be contained, and it sprung sprung up in many other places. And we need to pray that the same thing would happen today. 
That yes, Lord, there might be people who may seem to be successful in opposing your work. They seem to be successful in causing it to stop. But we pray that in one place where it might be stopped temporarily, you cause it to spring up in another. And we're going to pray about this. But we're also going to pray that the servants of Christ wouldn't be rattled by it. However fierce the opposition was, what is remarkable here in this passage is how unaffected Paul and Barnabas were. They were like, oh no, this is terrible. What are we going to do? You know, we're, we're undone. We, let's just give up. And, and, right? Even the whole church, to some extent, they seemed completely ambivalent. Paul and Barnabas' reaction, you know what? Fine. We're just going, we're going to another place. We're just going to continue. And the church's reaction as a whole, I mean, the passage fill, is finished by saying this, the disciples were filled with joy. You think they'd be like concerned and worried and anxious. They're filled with joy. What did they know that the enemies didn't know? They knew that you can't stop God's work. And so they know that, yes, there might have been a temporary halt here, but you're not going to stop the work of the kingdom of God. You're not going to stop the progress. And so they were confident, and they went on their work in a confident way. And we need to pray that the workers of Christ around the world, many of them are facing fierce opposition. It can be discouraging. We need to pray that God would help them to have the perspective that all Christ's missionaries and gospel workers should have, the perspective that Paul and Barnabas had. You're not going to stop it. And so we're going to continue on our work. Then we have the second category of reactions, the varied reactions of the believer to God's plan. So we had the reactions of the unbeliever. That's the first category. Now we have the reactions of the believer to God's plan. And first of all, we need to say the believer is someone who's not jealous. You may be like, well, okay, that's interesting. Well, the Jews and this, they were jealous. Look at verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, right, all these people flocking, they, they want to hear the gospel. And the Jews, they see this, they see the crowds, and they're filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. Now, here's the question. Why were they jealous? There seemed to be two potential reasons. I think one is not really likely, and that's this first one. They, they wanted these Gentiles to convert to Judaism. And so they're like, wait a minute, we want you to be with us, and you're going over there, so we're jealous. You're not part of our group. Possible? I don't think it's very likely. What I do think is likely is, is the second option, and I'm going to quote now from a commentator who says this. Some are jealous of the drawing in of the Gentiles to a distinct expression of promise rooted in Judaism. It is more likely that they object to the way Gentiles are being connected to Israel's God. In other words, zeal for covenant has blinded them from seeing the breakthrough of God's promise, with the result that positive zeal has become negative by cutting short the ultimate promise intended in the law. Let me summarize it in this way. They're saying, whoa, 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 whoa. This is our Bible. These were our promises. This is a covenant for us. This is our God. This is, this is our king. This isn't for Gentiles. This is our club. They're not allowed in. The salvation is for us. It's not for them. In other words, their jealousy was because they, were, they thought something that was exclusive now wasn't exclusive anymore. And they were trying to hoard, you could say, the, hoard the promises of God and keep them themselves. That's where it seems the jealousy was arriving from. And here the apostles come, and it's as it were, 
they go into the exclusive club and they break down the doors and the Gentiles are just flooding in. And they think, well, there goes our club, our exclusive club. And that's why they're jealous. It's like, we, we want this for ourselves. We don't want it to be broad. And this is and always must be the very opposite of the perspective of all God's true people. Bring him in. Bring him all in. I mean, we would want everybody to know about our God. Everybody to bow the knee to Christ. The more, the merrier. We're not looking to exclude anybody who will truly come and bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, truly put their faith in him. We desire that the blessings of salvation would extend to every single person. Let us rejoice with the angels at Christ's birth that the coming of Christ meant good news of great joy for all people. And may we have an amen in our hearts. And so let us reflect that in our prayers. Lord, we, we, we don't want to be small. We don't want there to be few Christians on the earth. We want all the world to honor you. We want all the nations to sing for joy. We would love it if every single person on this planet was a Christian. We don't take pride in being small. We're not jealous in that sense. So let us reflect this in our prayers. The believer is not jealous. Secondly, and much more briefly, the believer glorifies God. In the beginning of verse 48, the Gentiles heard this. And they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. As we hear and comprehend the length and the width and the breadth of God's plan for the world, we should glorify God in our heart. What a wonderful salvation this is. And this should be reflected in our prayers. We're saying glory be to God. He is doing a weighty, a grand, a mighty, a magnificent thing. He's causing his glory to spread throughout the whole world. The believer glorifies God. And thirdly, the believer is not jealous. The believer glorifies God. Thirdly, the believer is filled with joy. Verse 52, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. In verse 48a, joy is expressed by the Gentiles. But that's not the joy that I'm referring to. That's the joy of basically knowing, hey, it's for me too. Right? That's, that's, that's one joy, that you're welcomed into the kingdom. But the joy I want to highlight is what is found in verse 52. It seems to be the joy of seeing others come into the kingdom. The joy of those who had seen God's salvation extend to those previously outside the kingdom. And imagine being a devout, God-fearing Jew in that day. And maybe your grasp of God's Old Testament promises, like Peter's, right? Like the Apostle Peter's, was a little bit shaky. And now it's coming to dawn on you. Now you're coming to realize the universal scope of the kingdom of God. And you're seeing people from every tongue, language, and and nation. They're just flocking into it. And you're just saying, this is incredible. This is amazing. And the joy that filled the hearts of the disciples. In verse 52, I think that's the Jewish disciples that are being spoken of there. And may we express joy in our prayers. Lord, what a great thing. We're, We're just filled with joy that we can even pray about this. And then lastly, the believer spreads the word. In verse 49, it says, the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So it wasn't just Paul and Barnabas. You get the sense that everybody got excited about the universal spread of the gospel. They couldn't contain it in themselves. I know Paul and Barnabas were set aside, but wherever I'm going, I'm going to start telling everybody I meet. If there's Gentiles, Jews, it doesn't matter. They're all hearing it. They're all going to hear about the gospel. Where else can we go? Who else can we tell? 
where, the, where we go, the gospel goes. That was, the, that was what was happening. And we live in a day and age that's a little bit different. The nations have come to our door. We are the nations. Right? I mean, there's people here from Cuba and Haiti and Nor- Norway and Ecuador and I don't know where the Jembergs are from. Everywhere. So, um, and, and places like this, right? And it's, it's amazing. The nations have come to our door. And so we need to pray that God's people here at Anglo Baptist Church, but around the world, would be faithful ambassadors. That we would be numbered among those who are spreading the word of the Lord around the whole region. Because we want everybody to hear about this. Well, as we conclude, God's plan is salvation to the ends of the earth. Anything less is too small for him. This has always been his plan. And even now, that plan is being carried out. People that God elected from before time, those Gentiles appointed to eternal life before God created the world, are running to the God of Israel. Let us pray now and Wednesday for the continued success of the gospel around the world. Pray that God would frustrate all those who oppose it and grant strength to his servants in the midst of that opposition. May our prayers glorify God, and may we be filled with joy as we seek his face on Wednesday. And God forbid that we would keep our God's salvation to ourselves. But may we ourselves spread the gospel promiscuously to the peoples around us. Amen. Let's bow our heads and our hearts in prayer together. Lord, we praise you for the fact that your salvation has spread to the ends of the earth. And we rejoice with all your people to see it. And we ask that you would give us a burden, Lord, for its continued spread, its continued success. That there might be no people, tribe, language, or kindred that doesn't know your saving grace. We ask that as we come Wednesday that we would come as those who are filled with joy, filled with the spirit of intercession, and that you would give us power to pray, Lord, that we would glorify your name. And we do ask that you would hear those prayers and glorify your name and glorify the work of your Son. We pray that you would indeed make your name great in this earth. Anything less, we confess, is just too small for you. We pray this in Jesus' name.